Go ahead and be seated. Well, it's good to be with you. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're here with us. You're in the right place. If you're joining us in person, let's see. You both found your masks and your snow shovel this morning. So pretty good work, I tell you. It's getting harder and harder to come to church, but you made it. Good job. And wherever you're worshiping with us, you're in the right place. And it's the right day. I want to start you off with just a little story. It's a story about four families. Uh, the conversations had started months prior. There was a train depot where two tracks intersected and a bunch of people had moved to live nearby. Pretty soon, they'd started calling themselves a town, Johnson's Depot. And eventually they became a little city, Johnson City. These four families had been talking for a while that there ought to be a church in town that was just trying to be just Christians. And so two families from Boone's Creek Christian Church and two families from Buffalo Creek Christian Church, now we call it Hopwood, they decided to do just that, to start a little church. November 12, 1871, four families no preacher, eight adults, uh, a handful of kids, one living room, and a really big front porch. But, but what would they do when they met, you know? There was no one to write the sermons like there was at Boone's Creek or Buffalo Creek. There was no one to lead the singing. There was no piano, no organ, no drums. I suppose by the 1870s, someone might have owned a harmonica. But they actually weren't in doubt. They knew what to do. Uh, they looked at Acts 2.42, where it says, uh, in the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so these four families, that's what they did. Uh, they read a single chapter of the book of Acts. That was the apostles' teaching. Uh, then they would talk about the text, and they would talk about their lives. Just chat together there on the porch or the living room, depending on the weather. That was their fellowship. Then they would share in the Lord's Supper as part of a potluck dinner. That was the breaking of bread. And then before they left, they would close in prayer. Prayers for the church and prayers for one another. That is how we got our start. One chapter of the book of Acts, a little chatting, a little eating, a little praying. For the first couple of years, that's all they did. In fact, even after they hired their first minister, he was part-time and often traveled. And when he was gone, they went back to that simple pattern. A chapter of the book of Acts, a little bit of conversation, a big dinner, and some prayers. Now, there are lots of questions you might wonder. Uh, why was it that they always read from the book of Acts? Well, I suppose we can't go back and ask them, but, it, but it's a pretty reasonable choice. Uh, the book of Acts is one of the books of the Bible, and it tells the story of the very first church. 
It tells how the church got started, how the church grew, how they lived and worshipped, how they suffered, and how they stayed faithful. It's actually pretty good material for a brand new church. Uh, Maybe you're wondering, why did they bother to plant a church at all? They had growing, thriving churches up in Boone's Creek and over in Buffalo Creek. And some of them actually had to drive farther to get to the little house on Cedar Lane than they would have if they'd stayed where they were. Why go to all the trouble? Well, that's because even before they started their multi-year study of the book of Acts, they already knew what it taught. They knew that the book of Acts taught that the church is God's plan A for what God wants to accomplish in the world. And there is no plan B. What God intends to do in the world in this present moment, God intends to do through the church. The church is not God's backup strategy. The church, we are plan A and there is no plan B. That can be so hard for us to remember because we see the frailty of the church. We see the weakness of the church. And it can be hard. We sometimes lose sight of just how important God's church is to the work of God in the world. So for the next several weeks, we're going to learn from our founding families and we're going to study the book of Acts just like we did in the very beginning, to learn who we are as God's church and who the church is and how God is calling us to rise to the challenge of our moment. We're going to start right where they started 150 years ago, right where Katie left off last week. Speaking of that, didn't she crush it last week? That was awesome. I hope you were here. It was amazing. If you were watching online, if you missed it, go back, check it out online. What a great word. I love the fact that we're a place that is giving young leaders a chance to get their first ministry under their belt, do some awesome stuff, and then kick them out the door. No, I'm just teasing. We didn't kick her out the door. But she is going off to do some amazing work in Germany, and we're excited about that too. But she left off where we're going to start, Acts chapter 1. Here's what is written. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. I love there's a little foreshadowing in that sentence. In my last book, I wrote about Jesus and all the stuff Jesus did. In this book, We're going to write about a bunch of stuff that somebody else does. And we'll just watch and see. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever made the mistake of telling your kids you're going to get them a gift, and then you ask them what they think it is, and they say one thing, and you're like, oh shoot, that's what, totally what I should have gotten them. And you got them something completely different. And you're like, oh, they're going to be so disappointed. when they, Now they're all excited about that. And I got them. This is going to be a huge disappointment. That's what's about to happen to the disciples. Jesus says, I'm going to get you a gift. 
You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is awesome. And in their next words, they, they reveal the gift they hope he's going to get them. They say, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Because that's the present we're hoping for. Like, are you going to do more stuff, Jesus? Like you walked on water and you died on a cross and you rose the dead. Like, what are you going to do next? And he says, well, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last week, uh, Katie did a great job teaching us about what it means to be a witness. So I won't cover that again, but if you missed it, like I said, go watch it online. This week, I just want to notice something very, very simple about this text. When Jesus says, I have a gift for you, their first thought is, all right, Jesus, what are you going to do? And that makes total sense. I mean, right? He's the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. He's the one who has all the power of God fully residing in him. And now they believe it because he's proved it by resurrecting from the dead. And he's like been doing all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, that's like sort of been what the disciples do is they wake up every morning and like, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do today? And Jesus does a bunch of awesome stuff and then they like go to bed and they're like, that was super cool. I can't wait to see what Jesus does tomorrow. Like, I know they did a couple things. Like they've gone on some like mission trips and whatnot. But basically their job has been to watch Jesus do stuff. And so it makes sense that their plan for what comes next is that Jesus would keep doing stuff. It's been a pretty good plan so far. Until Jesus says, um, actually, I have a different plan. You are going to be my witnesses. Um, uh, uh, God's power is going to be in you, and my presence will be with you but you are God's plan A. And you can sort of imagine them replying or at least thinking like, okay, but if we're plan A, what's plan B? Because like, have you met Peter? He was denying you basically five minutes ago. And Judas betrayed you like last month. We're like working a man down here and the ones that are left aren't the best, you know, of the lot. So what's your backup plan? And Jesus doesn't have a backup plan. God supplies the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises his ongoing presence, but the church is the plan. Us, we are, are God's plan. And so they wait and they pray and they wait and they pray and then they get busy. And they mess up sometimes and they fail sometimes, but they persist in the work of God because they are God's plan A. There is no plan B. And this conversation is a pivot point in salvation history. I mean, there have been other pivot points, obviously, right? The, the arrival of Jesus, the death on the cross, the resurrection. And there will be pivot points to come, Christ's return, when all things are brought to completion. But this was a turning point in salvation history. What God has begun in Christ Jesus and what God will complete 
through Christ Jesus, in the present moment, God continues to accomplish through you. And that's just, a, it's just an overwhelming truth, right? What God began in Jesus and what Jesus is going to finish in the middle, God is accomplishing through us, through the church. Uh, theologically, we express this truth uh, in, in this way. The church is the body of Christ. Uh, this teaching shows up throughout Scripture. Paul says in Romans, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is in the head, who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say that the church is the hands and feet of Christ. My mind thinks of things. My body does things. And in the same way today, the church is the practical expression of the work and will of God. Listen, I know we don't always look like much, all right, you know. I know the church can sometimes be a feeble body, but nevertheless, God's Word teaches that we are Christ's body at work in the world. We are God's plan A. Historically, what does this look like? Well, historically, it looks like this, that, that God's Word just demonstrates that what Jesus did, the church does. What Jesus did, the church does. Um, Luke, uh, one, of the, one of the Gospels, one of the books of the Bible that tells the story of Jesus' life, he records this great scene where John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus basically asking, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you God's anointed? Are you the, the Savior we've been waiting for? And Jesus answers, he says, go back to John and report what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He says, you know that, that I am the Messiah at work in the world because this is the kind of stuff I'm doing. And then the same guy who wrote Luke wrote the book of Acts and tells the story of the church and all that same stuff keeps happening. The work of Christ just continues. The historical witness of the book of Acts is that what Christ did, the church now does. It is still God's power. It is still Christ's presence, but now a new plan. And that plan is us. So practically, what does this mean for a believer today and, and the church today? It, it means this. The work that God wants to do in the world today, God intends to do through the church, through you and me, through us. Do a little thought experiment with me. Think about something that you care about and that you're just sure God cares about too. Like, don't make it complicated. Make it super easy. Like, uh, you, you, you care about making sure that hungry people eat. And, and, and that God's word is super clear. We, everybody, nobody wonders whether God cares about that. We all know God wants hungry people to eat. Uh, or or you, 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 you care uh, that, uh, that, 
that, that racism you know, would, would end and that and people would, would love one another and honor one another as the children of God that we are and not divide over, over race and stuff like that. Again, no, there's no brainers. We know God cares about that and we care about that. So, so think about that thing that you care about and you know God cares about. All the things, and we can make a long list, every single thing that you and God would love to accomplish in the world that you're passionate about because you know God's passionate about and and something needs to be done about it. All the good that God has begun in Christ and all the good that God will finish through Christ. In the present age, God wants to use the church. Like, like whatever that thing is that you've got in your head, the church is God's plan A. Like, like maybe it's racism. And you're like, well, who, how does God want to respond to racism? They, they won't pass a law that'll stop racism, right? Like it, they won't make a movie that's going to end racism. But if, but if everyone's heart was turned to Christ and everyone recognized that in Christ we are one family, well, that would do it. The church is God's plan A to end racism. Maybe it's about caring for the poor. They're, they're never going to pass a law that will end poverty. They're, they're never going to make a job program that, that allow, that, that they'll never solve it with a vote or a law or a war. But, but the church, if every, if, every, if every person was connected in the family of God, and like in that Acts chapter 2, we opened our homes and shared our tables, well, we could make a difference. And just whatever it is you care about. You, you want to make sure that the, the proclamation of the good news, right? How are we going to make sure everybody knows that God is love and God loves them and that Christ died for them and Christ can give them life and give them purpose and give them hope and they no longer have to be bound in slavery to their sin and death? How in the world are they going to know? Well, the church is God's plan A. I mean, just tell me the thing you care about. Uh, I, I care about dignity for the elderly, or inclusion for those with special needs, or I care about lonely people that make sure that they have a family and know that they belong, or I care about peace in the world. Everything that you care about and God's care about, God's strategy for making a difference is the local church. I was talking about this with a friend once, and we were specifically talking about peace in the world and the way violence just spins out of control in every generation. And I just said, I really believe that God's strategy for, for putting a stop to the ever-present cycle of violence is the local church to grow and strengthen and have people converted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think that's how we want to address violence. And they said kind of skeptically, they said, well, that wouldn't help with World War II. Well, what do you do? The church was supposed to have a prayer meeting to make Hitler stop? And I said, well, I didn't just say the American church. What about the German church? You don't think the German church could have stopped World War II? 85% of Germans were Christians. What if they just refused to fight and said, we're going to pray instead? That would have done it, right? You see, the the power of the church, we we so underestimate it. We we forget that God says, I give you my power, and Christ goes with us, and you're my plan to heal and shape and redeem and care for the world. I have a very specific and practical concern here. Uh, I care a lot about politics. I think uh, the, the... the willingness of Christians to vote and study and participate as local and federal leaders is really important and valuable. 
I care a lot about nonprofit groups and how they fill the gap where the church has fallen down on the job and isn't caring for homeless or feeding the poor or helping our schools. I care about nonprofits. I, I care about protests. I think sometimes when things are being ignored, the people need to, need to march, obviously peacefully. I hate that I even have to say that, but of course I mean peacefully. But the people do need to march and make a poster and remind us of when something's being forgotten. I care about protests. And I care about your posts on social media. Absolutely say something, right? You know? But I worry. I just got a little word of biblical advice for you. It's especially, I think, good advice for young people and old people and people in between. So if you're in one of those three categories, this is advice for you. Give good energy to protests. And give some good energy to politics and give some good energy to nonprofits and give some good energy to your social media posts. But give your best energy to the local church. Because the things you care about and God cares about that you want to be healed in our world, God's plan for making a difference is the local church. It's God's church. We were praying. Um, Thursday night with our elders, and one of the things we did as we kicked off was just pray for our country as we were getting ready for our Bible study. And it was, it was a good time of prayer. We prayed about a lot of different things, but in the middle, one of the elders prayed this. He said, God, would you let the change start with us? Help us to forgive. Help us to love. Help us to be peacemakers. Why does that prayer make so different? Because, because we are God's plan A. And maybe you're thinking, this is just too much pressure. Like, this just can't be true. Like, you know, it's what the Bible keeps saying, but, but it can't, we can't be plan A. It's like, you know, you wonder, does God not know how messed up we are individually and collectively? We're sort of a wreck, right? Surely God would not let an institution as weak and frail as the local church be God's plan A. But here's the thing. Even our weakness is part of God's plan. Paul writes this. We have this treasure in clay jars to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Paul says it's God's power, it's Christ's presence, but it's exercised right now through God's frail church. And it is your weakness and my weakness and our collective weakness that reveals to the whole world that if there's any power in this, it's from God. If there's any presence, it's Christ, not us. And Paul just says that's actually the plan, is that God's power will be revealed in our weakness. Just, I just wonder what would change if just for a moment, if even for a second, we could see the church the way God does. Like we see this frail, feeble institution 
with confusion and grumbling and chaos, you know, where we sometimes are prone to argue about the carpet and the music and everything else, right? This is what God says about the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Sure, once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Sure, once you hadn't been given mercy, but now you have been granted mercy. That's what God thinks about you, about us. God says, I picked you. I anointed you. I set you apart. I own you. And I've given you a mission. All of this I've done so that you might declare my praises, so that you might accomplish my purposes. What God began in Christ Jesus and will complete in Christ Jesus in the present age, God continues to accomplish through God's church. We're plan A, and there is no record anywhere in Scripture of a backup plan. God wants to do it through the local church, through you, through us. And that is why four families gathered in a living room in Johnson City. Reports differ about how many months it was before even one more person joined their fellowship. But it was a long Time. But there's no record of any consideration they made to giving up and going back to Boone's Creek and Buffalo Creek because they knew that the local church was God's plan A to accomplish God's purposes in Johnson City, in Washington County, in Tennessee, and the ends of the earth. And they knew there was no plan B. They knew it because every week they got together and read the book of Acts, which made it so clear what God wanted to do through the church, which meant that's what God wanted to do it through this church. And over the last 150 years, more and more people have joined the work that those four families began. Some have joined it for their whole lives. And some have joined in for a season. In fact, we had a whole bunch uh, join in with the work that God is doing through this church just last week. Uh, here's a video from our last First Things First class, because I want you to meet some of these people who just joined the church, and we did it online because it was hard to be in person. Take a look at these people. Hey, church. I'm here with our latest First Things First class, and a whole bunch of them want to join the church, and we want to get you to see their faces as we share in our confession together. Here's what you know. You know that we are membered together because we are membered with Christ, and our unity is found in our confession of faith, our decision to trust Jesus. That's what makes us one spiritual family, brothers and sisters with one another. So right now, uh, if you're joining the church, uh, repeat your confession of faith after me. If you're already a part of the church, 
also do it as we are membered together in Christ. Let's say this together. I believe. I believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. And he is my Lord. And he is my Lord. And he is my Savior. Amen. Welcome to First Christian Amen. Church. We can't wait till we get to hug you and meet you all in person and all these things. We're so glad that you're a part of the church. God's blessing on you. That was a good day. If you haven't been to First Things First, look for the info about the next one that comes. They come up every couple of months or so. Great way to learn about the church and get invited to join in this journey uh, along with the rest of us. If you can't wait for the next class, just reach out to me. We'll meet and get you going. Uh, because we know what God's Word says about the church. Next several weeks, we're just going to walk through the book of Acts, just like we did 150 years ago. But I don't think any of you were there, so I don't think you'll remember it. But anyways, uh, and we're just going we're gonna, to we're gonna ask some big questions. We're going to ask questions that matter to us today just as much as they mattered 150 years ago or 2,000 years ago. We're going to ask some big questions, and we're going to discover that every one of these big questions has the same surprising answer. We'll ask things like, how does God plan to tell people about Jesus? How will God address the racism that they had in the early church and that we still struggle with today? How does God plan to welcome lonely people into a family? How does God plan to feed the poor? What's God's strategy for making sure everyone knows about Jesus? We're going to ask some big questions. How does God plan to make sure that the people that are overlooked by the world get cared for and loved? We're going to ask some big questions and discover that they all have the same answer. We are God's plan A. We, we're the plan. God's people surrendered to Christ, partnered together as a local church, advancing the priorities of purpose of God. This is God's plan A. It was 150 years ago. It was 2,000 years ago, as we'll see from the book of Acts. And it's still God's plan today. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us the power of God and the presence of Christ so that we will be emboldened to accept the charge you've laid before us, to in our day serve the purposes of God and advance your will for the world. God, we love you. And we tremble just a little bit as we face the truth, but we just ask that you would, by your Spirit's presence, by Christ's Lordship in our lives, that you would call us forward to be the servants you need in this generation. We pray all this in Jesus' name.